We need to be a people who perpetuate our culture, but not to the exclusion of advancement. So we can look at who we are and we can say, okay, what elements of Appalachia can we redeem in order to further the gospel? And what elements of Appalachia do we need to forget? You know, that's called contextualization. That's what anyone should do in any culture where they find themselves. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. The Appalachian region of the United States. Is it the South? Well, it spans from New York to Mississippi, so not really. Is it the Midwest? No, it sits just east of there. So what is it? Put simply... (laughs) It's Appalachia. Due to the rugged terrain, early Americans who were headed west basically got stuck if they chose the mountain routes. For better or for worse, a mindset of, here we are and this is where we'll stay, became seared into generations of Americans who were born in that region. It can have benefits and drawbacks. On this Level Paths podcast, the perceptions of Appalachians. Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin are having a look at some interesting perspectives about the Appalachian region and how it impacts reaching people with the gospel. Here's Rex. My name is Rex Howe. I'm the president of Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, and I'm here with my brother and my partner, Dr. Matt Shamblin. Matt, how's it going? Doing well, Rex. We're in a little different setting than we've ever been before. We're actually in the same room using one microphone. We've never done this before. We're going to have some good times today as we talk about perceptions of Appalachians. Before we get into the material, we want to talk just a bit about our conference that's coming up. Each podcast leading up to April 25th, we're going to be talking just a little bit more about the Appalachian Ministry Conference, which is on Tuesday, April 25th of this year. And the theme is fulfilling your ministry with hope in the darkness of Appalachia. We've talked about Dean Fox as our plenary speaker. We uh, just at last episode talked with Jonathan Buckner from Chosen Road, our special music guest. This episode, I want to talk just about a couple of our sessions, Matt. We have a lot of different topics that will be addressed in the breakout sessions. One is hope for the homeless in Appalachia. My good friend, Wayne Walker, who is the founder and pastor at Our Calling Ministry in Dallas, Texas, will be coming up to South Point to talk to us about ministering to the homeless community or the unhoused community in our region. Learn some things from his experience of many years of working with the homeless. Another session, and I'll pick out some of these as we go, our own Dr. Mark Phillips, our VP of Academics at Tri-State Bible College and Professor of Apologetics will be talking about hope for an irreligious Appalachia. What do you think about that? I think it's really exciting because often Appalachia is perceived as traditional Southern culture, Bible Belt culture, and it's not. The statistics continue to prove that though there may be many, and this number is decreasing, who identify themselves as Christian, the rate of church attendance is tragically low in Appalachia. And so addressing this, especially from someone so brilliant as uh, Dr. Phillips, is going to be extremely helpful in helping those who are ministering in Appalachia be better equipped to engage Appalachians with the gospel. Excellent. So we hope that you'll come out 
uh, and be with us. If you go to tsbc.edu and you look at the very top of the webpage, you'll see a banner that's uh, kind of golden and you'll see explore the Appalachian Ministry Institute. If you click on that, it'll take you right to the registration. It's going to be a great conference this year. I hope that everyone makes a priority to be there. We're trying to make it as great as we can, and we're making it distinctively Appalachian because that's who we're trying to serve. Even more than last year, if you can imagine it. Even more than last year. Yeah, that's exactly right. So our topic today is really important. We're going to talk about perceptions of Appalachia and perceptions of people, particularly in Appalachia. But let's start with some examples. What would be some examples in popular culture of perceptions, stereotypes of Appalachians? You know, growing up on the weekends, often I would be sent to the Shamblin Farm where my grandparents lived. And they had two, later three television channels. And on a Saturday night, they would be tuned in to Hee Haw. Hee Haw was this really corny television show that was a variety show with music and situational type comedic things. And it was really, really corny. And it really was depicting not just Southern culture, but more specifically Appalachian country culture. Uh, That's one of the greatest examples and one of the greatest perpetuating factors of Appalachian perceptions and examples of cultural stereotypes. We've all seen, whether it be on the Flintstones or the many different cartoons, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and they're always with a shotgun, a corncob pipe, no shoes, cut off pants, ready to shoot it out for no reason whatsoever. We've seen it on television shows like the Andy Griffith show. That's one of my favorite television shows, but let's just be honest. It is set in the Piedmont area of North Carolina. That's right in Appalachia. It is very heavily, especially the first season, leaning into the culture of Appalachia, whether it be with accent or making pickles, whatever is happening there, you're definitely seeing this perpetuation of culture. But Rex, you have some others. I don't know if you remember this show. Do you remember the show Christy? I do, yeah. I think that that setting is Appalachia. I'm pretty sure that the setting of Christie is Appalachia. I don't know that it's a completely negative portrayal of the culture. Certainly, it, it portrays probably both and. Uh, it has a little bit of a Christian-themed show, I believe, if I remember correctly. But that's a, that's an older show. But I just Googled movies about Appalachia, okay? And when you Google movies about Appalachia, of course, you get Hillbilly Elegy. Okay, which we've talked about before on the show. But most of the movies that come up are horror films, horror films. So wrong turn. Now, I've not seen wrong turn, but the setting is Appalachian from what I can understand. There are several others here that I'm looking at where it's a horror themed movie and the setting is Appalachia, because if you make a wrong turn in Appalachia, you might end up in some pretty bad places. Right. Well, you know, I think one of the classic the classic movies is Deliverance. I've never seen Deliverance, but you always hear people say some negative comments when they hear a banjo. And one of the characters that played in that movie, I'm told, or the last I heard, still worked in the Walmart in Paintsville, Kentucky, not very far from where we're recording this today. So there's a lot of perceptions about Appalachians. Not all of them are negative, but not all of them are good either. And we have to be honest about this. We have to be honest about 
where they came from, how it came to be, and and the reality uh, of the way Appalachians are perceived. So really, Rex, this finds its origins in the immigrants who came from Europe, from Scotland and Ireland, always talked about as the Scots-Irish, who the earliest settlers of Appalachia. We know the original people who lived in Appalachia were, of course, Native Americans. But when those who came from Europe, they often came because they had a hard life in Europe, looked at as low class in Europe, and so they moved to Appalachia. And some of those connotations and those perceptions were perpetuated when they got here. Mm. In fact, it wasn't uncommon to see on a sign, a job advertisement, these letters, N-I-N-A, no Irish need apply. And so we can see these origins and we can find the evidences of that all across Appalachia. I'm Irish. And so that hits home to me. And when we think about those origins and thinking that these are people who were rejected in Europe, were looked at low class in Europe, and then they came to America. And essentially, the place that they were accepted was across the mountains where nobody else lived. That's where they found acceptance as the movement to the mountains and through the mountains came. We can see even continued rejection. We can see even a continued to move away from that. These people found it hard to find jobs. And so they became very ingrained and behooven to the coal companies. Mm. You know, some said, I talked to one expert on Appalachia, student of Appalachia about this. And he said they became slaves to the coal companies. Mm. They worked hard without union representation. They worked at the will of the coal companies. They were paid in coal script. They lived in company houses. They bought their food and their wares at the company store. And if they tried to get out of that cycle, they had no way they would have starved to death before that happened. And coal culture, one even describes Appalachia as any place there is coal under the ground. That's pretty broad, but we can know for sure that the early days of these immigrants shaped the way they were seen by others, their deprived economic status, the lack of education and opportunity made them in many ways slaves to the coal companies. And there was no way to get out of that. Rex, that that hits home for me because when we would go to the Shamblin farm, my grandfather when he stopped working, he stopped working as a school bus driver. But before that, he worked as a coal miner. He and my dad, my dad was the oldest of all their children, would cut locust posts. And this was even as a little boy, he would cut locust posts and they would sell those posts to the coal mines in order to help make ends meet. The food was right there grown on the farm. And so we can see the way that this impacted the culture. And we can also think about the way that when the coal companies moved on, the way that impacts culture. So when you have a political candidate say to Appalachians, there is no more coal power plants. Coal mining's dead. That's all they've known. That's all their grandparents have known. That's all their great-grandparents have known. And you can see the elements of that all around Appalachia. Mm. Now, another thing that plays into this, the perpetuating of the personifications or perceptions of the immigrants uh, settling in the region 
having difficulty with employment elsewhere, the coal companies coming in, in reality, making the people so dependent that it becomes it becomes a very negative situation. But you also have geographic isolation. Talk to us about that. What does geographic isolation do to these origination things? Well, I mean, can you imagine for a moment that these early European immigrants are not accepted in what would have believed to be the, the civilized world? And so they moved across the mountains to get away from people. They faced taxation without representation. That's not just the new world and the old world, but that is the new world and the Appalachian world. That's how West Virginia became a state, is that the Appalachian Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains separated the representation from Virginia from those who were across the mountains. And they were underrepresented, and that's how West Virginia became a state. The very thing that's a characteristic of Appalachia is they love their mountains. It's a love of place. But that love of place is also an isolation, at least in the early days, from the rest of the world. I'd go to that Shamlin farm, and I remember the telephone ringing, and it would have a funny ring. And some of my aunts and uncles would say, don't answer the phone. Well, you know, I was a little kid, so I'd answer the phone anyway. And there'd be people talking on the phone. You put it down, you come back at a later time. There were people talking on the phone, but they weren't in the house. I mean, this is, I'm not that old, but there was no cable. There was no satellite. Nobody even knew what the internet was. And there was a party telephone line. We'd go to church and there was an outhouse out on the, on the side of the hill. The church was heated by pot belly stoves on a really cold morning. They were fed with coal. And so Appalachia was isolated. And as a result of that isolation, it was someone even termed it our contemporary ancestors. When America essentially discovered Appalachia, it was like looking into the past of America. But as I've said before, Appalachia changed more in the 20th century than it did in all that time before. Because when cable television came in, you had a window to the world. When satellite television came in, you have an even broader image to the world, uh, window into the world. And then when the internet came, the mountains were flattened mm. because we were able to get to anywhere in the world instantaneously and Appalachia advanced. And so though those perceptions may have not been so inaccurate in the past, that's not modern Appalachia. We have to think about modern Appalachia. Appalachia has large cities and some of those cities even though they're situated in Appalachia, are no longer even considered Appalachian. Nashville is no longer considered Appalachian. Now, it would be far to the West, but it was without question saturated with Appalachian culture. It's the home of the Grand Old Opry. Of course, where do you think this stuff came from? But now it's a different kind of city because of the advancements. Charlotte, North Carolina is an Appalachian city, but now not considered so much of an Appalachian city. Atlanta, Georgia is an Appalachian city, but not really anymore. We're seeing these change now. So the largest cities in Appalachia are going to be Charleston, West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia, Morgantown. You know, you could go a little further north into Pennsylvania. You can see that even in eastern Kentucky. But the Internet, the advent of the Internet, the advent of satellite television, changed Appalachians. Many Appalachians, this comes from this idea of inferiority. Many Appalachians look at, have always looked at themselves to be less than, 
And when they were able to turn on cable television, satellite television, look on the internet, the trends that were available everywhere else in the world came to Appalachia. So my mom's second husband had a son. He was from California and I was in sixth grade and he came to Clinton in West Virginia to my sixth grade party. And oh, I have to say, Silas was a good looking guy. He had California hair, whatever that means. And he tight rolled his pants. Ah, this is, we're right in the heart of, of the late 80s, early 90s. Rex, when Silas walked in and he was just there with me, he was my older stepbrother, you know, all the girls swooned over Silas with his California hair, but the boys within days were all tight rolling their pants. They saw this trend. I think that Silas Lyons single-handedly brought tight rolling pants to Clinton and West Virginia and to Elkview, West Virginia. So, you know, Rex, it's not always that Appalachians are closed to change. No. It's just the Appalachians of the past weren't exposed to change. They weren't exposed to advancement. And now that's changed in Appalachia. I can remember being a teenager, and I, and I shouldn't have been watching this as a teenager, but I watched MTV a lot as a teenager, Matt, and tried to imitate a lot of the lifestyle, popular cultural habits that I saw on MTV. And we won't get too deep down in that rabbit hole, okay, for your sake and for mine. But I understand what you're saying. It's like that quote that we read and kind of laughed about a little bit ago that you can take a lady to heaven, an Appalachian woman to heaven, but she's going to want to go back to the mountains every other weekend. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) We can adapt. We can change. We can look at what's going on in, in other parts of the nation or other parts in the world and kind of assess that and consider what integration of those sorts of things might look like. But we're still who we are. We're still... Appalachian. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about about That's being right. Appalachian. Anywhere else in the world, we look at the cultures of the world and we celebrate the diversity of those cultures. When we think about the picture in Revelation 7, there's going to be those from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne. Maybe there's going to be a little banjo picking up there too. Because as we think about this, The Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel is not just a gospel to the metropolitan cities. Mm -hmm. It's not just the gospel to the Midwestern vanilla accent. It's not just the gospel to Europe. It's the gospel to Appalachia as well. Mm -hmm. Appalachia is a place that gets so has gotten so ingrained in its culture that we see the influence of Christianity has become very much a cultural influence but it's no longer a religious influence. Mm. It's no longer an influence where people are transformed. And so, Rex, really Appalachians, we need to be a people who perpetuate our culture, but not to the exclusion of advancement. So we can look at who we are and we can say, okay, what elements of Appalachia can we redeem Mm. in order to further the gospel And what elements of Appalachia do we need to forget? You know, that's called contextualization. That's what anyone should do in any culture where they find themselves. You look at the culture that you live in and your goal, and, and, you know, the history of missions tells us that this was the approach, that you go somewhere, you make them like where you left, 
but it's modern mission tells us that there's a better way. Mm. In the Bible, we find a better way. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. So let's transition a bit. We've talked about this topic a number of times, and it's this sense of an Appalachian's feelings of solidarity or commonality with what others would understand to be ethnic minorities. There's a commonality that we sometimes feel, I won't say all the time, but that we sometimes feel with those groups. And I'm talking as a white man. There are educational things and economic things. I want to be careful how I say this, and I hope I say it correctly, but that when I lived in Dallas, Texas, I had good friends who were, who looked just like I look, but there was a, a portion of my ministry that took place at a, an apartment complex that was almost entirely Mexicans, Mexican immigrants, uh, families, some here legally, some here illegally, just just trying to make it. You know, I won't get too much into that. But I would go home and tell my wife sometimes after ministering to the kids there and after experiencing some of the family life there, I would say something about this feels like home. And I, I couldn't always put my finger on it. And a lot of it was the mothers, the mothers in the kind of hospitable environment that they created in an, in an economically challenged situation to an outsider like me. And the other thing, which is a, a little bit funnier, is when one of the boys in my youth group, one of the Mexican boys in my youth group would get in trouble. What I saw from those Mexican mothers reminded me a lot of what I saw from my Appalachian mama. <laughs> well, you know, Rex, when those European settlers moved across the mountains, they found existing Indian tribes, and those tribes were led by the women. We've seen that perpetuated in Appalachian culture. We see that perpetuated in African-American culture. We see that perpetuated in Hispanic culture, that they are cultures, and we can talk about subcultures within our broader culture of America all of them have a commonality of led by their mother, the role of the mother in Apple, whether it be in Appalachia or among African Americans or among Hispanics. Mama has a big, big role. And, you know, we often say if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, we see that in Appalachia as well. Uh, my uncle pastors a church in West Virginia. It is a small white frame church set up on the hillside. And that church went out of existence and a lady had her Sunday school roster. She went down the roster and started calling people and inviting them back to church. And she put that church back together. And then those folks called a pastor who was my uncle, which is amazing. He wasn't in ministry, wasn't trained for ministry, wasn't serving in ministry, but his dad had been the pastor of that church many years before. And so they invited him to come to church. And before you know it, he's the pastor. So there are lots of commonalities within subgroups. I, you know, we, we've got to, I want to be careful. I want to be sensitive because many of the ethnic groups have suffered greatly, whether it be the Native Americans or the African Americans or the Hispanics or on and on we could go. But we also have to recognize that when you think about minority groups as racially disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged or educationally disadvantaged or the lack of opportunity for health care or food insecurities, on and on you could go. 
Appalachians fit in almost every one of those categories. And so when we think about these things, we can recognize that Appalachians have much in common with other minority groups, and some would even classify Appalachians as a minority group. Now, that's interesting because Appalachians is a minority group. We often think, well, you've got to have a country of origin that changes your ethnicity. And the truth is, Appalachians often look just like anybody else, but their culture is not the same. Their educational opportunities and on and on you can go. Now, we know that technology's changed much of that. Mm. I mean, now we both serve at Tri-State Bible College, and much of our education, the education that we provide on campus, is available anywhere in the world now through the internet. And so there's a lot of commonality there because Appalachians are often discriminated against because we may sound different, because we may be from a different part of the world. And often when we think about those cultural examples, we think about the tobacco spitting, corn cob pipe smoking, barefoot hillbilly, and never think that maybe this is a person that has this accent and they're from this part of the world, uh, this part of our nation, but they have capabilities just like anybody else. Sometimes some of the brightest people, we could go down this list and, yeah. and, and think about the incredible people who have come from Appalachia that we don't need to be embarrassed about. We would never ask anybody from any other culture to be embarrassed about or change their culture to be a a part of the picture. Mm. But that's often what happens to minority groups and groups just like those in Appalachia. You know, it's interesting as we talk about this, if you look at the um, Department of Development for the state of Ohio, there are 32 Appalachian counties in South Central and Southeastern Ohio. The governor's office has a special office of Appalachia. And uh, this office works to foster economic and community development and partnership endeavors to improve the lives of those living in the region. Some of the initiatives include Appalachian businesses, Appalachian workforce ecosystem, helping with things like housing and childcare and so forth. Appalachian infrastructure. I know that for Ohio, Appalachian counties, the internet service getting more easily accessible has been a major initiative of Governor DeWine. Culture and tourism. How do we enhance the natural beauty of the region to bring more business and interest in the area and then leadership and capacity? I'm just reading this straight off the Department of Development in the state of Ohio. So, When we read that, what we're hearing is a lot of the same things we would read with other groups and the government's initiatives to help enhance their livelihoods and so forth. My wife pointed out to me in Cincinnati, Appalachians are considered a protected class because of the prejudices affecting jobs and educational accessibilities. So just like any other subculture, Appalachians are often discriminated against. I remember being in class at Liberty University. I'm not going to name the professor. I couldn't remember the professor. And in this class, students were, of course, encouraged to interact and contribute. And this is the first time I'd had this professor. And I would contribute and would readily be ignored and just dismissed, whatever I would say. And it wasn't until I really proved my mettle in that class that I was able to contribute. It wasn't until later when I showed that, hey, 
I have these capabilities, but they had to be shown. I had to prove it. Other people in the class didn't have to prove it, but I did. But Rex, I will tell you, there was one point of encouragement that it always had that I would walk out of the class and I would walk past a display case right at the front door. And in that display case was a picture of B.R. Lakin, saddlebags that B.R. Lakin used, and a Bible that he would preach from. Now, B.R. Lakin was a famous preacher several years ago. And there was a book. I have a book right here in my hand, A Country Preacher by B.R. Lakin. And he was right here from Eastern Kentucky in West Virginia. And I would be reminded that this professor, though he would dismiss me because of my accent and think that I didn't have capability, was teaching in the B.R. Lakin School of Religion. And so that would encourage me. This book, this little book, I felt like I was so disadvantaged because I wasn't raised in a Christian home, didn't have the background. And here I have this accent. Uh, and I think it was probably worse then than it is now, had this accent. And was I ever going to be able to make it as a pastor? Would anybody ever take me seriously? And it was reading this book. I found this book, B.R. Lakin, Just a Country Preacher, that encouraged me. Those saddlebags encouraged me to keep going when others were willing to dismiss me because there had to be an opportunity just to have a chance to show, okay, my accent may make you think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, may make you think of those horror movies, may make you think of Hee Haw. But if you'll just give me a chance, I'll show you that that's not what you're dealing with here. Yeah. And, you know, Rex, we've found that in so many places. The most poignant place that we find it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. If we look at the Gospel of John, chapter one, as the Lord is gathering his disciples, we find one disciple, Nathaniel, who's speaking with Philip. And in chapter one of the Gospel of John, verse 46, it says, And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If we were just to do a really wooden translation, I've got the Greek text here in front of me. It's out from Nazareth. Is it possible anything good to be? <laughs> <laughs> and you were telling me that that good, yeah. Is there anything quality? Is there anything quality? Is there anything of high standard? Is there anything useful, beneficial, any treasure, anything with a high standard of worth and merit, anything good come out of Nazareth? So this idea of rural to the more populated places, if this is an issue among Appalachians, you need look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ to recognize that this was an issue among the Lord as well. Now, of course, we're not Jesus, right? but we have to recognize that just because you're from a rural place, you have humble beginnings. So too did Abraham, so too did David, so too did Jesus. And these were men that God used to shake the world. Of course, we know, of course, the Lord Jesus, no one made a bigger impact than Jesus in a shorter amount of time. And we should be encouraged by that, Rex. Yeah, amen. I mean, the Messiah, you know, you, we think of the Messiah, we're thinking of the highest quality, the superlative of quality. And for that kind of quality to have come from Nazareth, you know, Nathaniel just can't reckon with this. You know, we've talked about different experiences we've had as Appalachian men and things that we face, this or that. Kind of that question that others might ask of us, can can anything can anything good come out of central Appalachia, Matt? 
Oh, you know, <laughs> this question was asked of Jesus. This question was asked of Spurgeon. This question was asked of Billy Graham. Can anything good come from the rural places? Mm. Specifically, Billy Graham from Appalachia. Mm. I think that he's a prime example of yes, oh, yes. You know, when Spurgeon went to London, he didn't speak as highly as those in London. He didn't speak as properly as those. In fact, he he even had D.L. Moody come preach to him. Spurgeon said of Moody, he was the only man who could pronounce Mesopotamia in a single syllable. You know, I would be reminded then that the power is in the gospel we preach. That we're doing a work that God has called us to do. And though the world may laugh and mock, we have to be reminded that they laughed and mocked at our Lord Jesus. They laughed and mocked at Spurgeon. And remember, Billy Graham showed up at Mordecai's hand's tent that night in order to laugh and mock at him. And then I think about this now. Now he's in glory. He's received the crowns of reward. The most celebrated gospel preacher in the modern world. God used a boy from Appalachia to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Rex, when we look to Scripture, we have to be reminded that our responsibility in preaching the gospel, especially as pastors, is not that we reach the world as pastors. We reach the world as Christians. Mm. Our responsibility as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Our goal is not to make them like us. Our goal is to prepare them so that they can reach people just like them. That's the indigenous approach to missions. Yeah. And and that's our purpose here at the Appalachian Ministry Institute and the Level Paths podcast. We want to affirm, we want to encourage, and we want to equip people who are doing ministry in an Appalachian context for the glory of God. That's right. So that they can help other people see the glory of God. Yeah. We talk about leveling mountains and raising up valleys so that uh, the glory of the Lord can be seen. So let's talk about indigenous missions. What can we learn from the modern missionary efforts strategically and how the approach has shifted from what used to be in missions to what it is now in training the people who live indigenously in those areas to reach their own people? What can we learn from that movement? I think that that's exactly what we find in Scripture, and I think that that's what we have to repeat. I mean, when we think about the choosing of the first deacons, we see this example. Let's find Greek-speaking deacons who will minister to Greek-speaking people, Hebrew-speaking deacons to minister to Hebrew-speaking people, or those with those origins. We recognize that we're going to be most open to the gospel with those who are most like us. That may be skin color. That may be accent. That may be place of origin. But you know, if we are to reach the nations with the gospel, we recognize the powers in the gospel and that our goal is not to make them like us. Our goal is to reach them where they are so they can reach people just like them. That's modern missions. That's what modern missions is all about. Instead of moving to a place and trying to make them like the area that we're from, that's the old approach. The modern approach is go and find people of peace, reach them with the gospel, equip them so that they can reach the people that are like them. When you live in an area of the world that's more diverse, this happens all around us. 
I live in Ashland, Kentucky. It's a city of about 20,000 people. I used to serve in Charleston, West Virginia. That's a city of about 50,000 people. Those are some of the largest cities in Appalachia. But let's just be honest, if we're going to reach larger communities, they're going to be more diverse communities. Mm. They're going to be increasingly more people not like us. Mm. How can somebody who sounds like me or sounds like you or from a rural place make a larger impact? make disciples of the nations. And so it was the Lord Jesus who gave us the strategy. You'll be witnesses to me me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We're to reach the nations and the local all at the same time. And so we have to equip the saints. It's a ridiculous idea to believe that I'm going to be like everybody I meet. I'm just not going to be. Mm. But That should excite us because the diverse picture that we see before the throne of God tells us that the gospel will prevail, that people will come to faith in Christ, and those people will be different, sound different, look different, and they're all going to, in unity, sing praises to a single Savior. That should excite us. This has been the story of the people of God since the church started. When you look at Ephesians 2, when you look at even the different groups of people represented in just the 12 disciples. I mean, you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. How's that going? Yeah, that's right. There you (laughs) go. I mean, we have all been called uh, into the church, into the people of God to carry out Christ's, Christ's great commission. It belongs to him and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. And I think that what we've talked about here that we've learned from the modern indigenous missions movement is very applicable here in Appalachia. It's what we're doing at the Appalachian Ministry Institute. How can we get a better grasp on the history of the people, the history of the faith among the people, the history of the church in the area? And then how does that help us contextualize ministry today with all of the the dynamic features that we're facing as pastors and teachers and Christian workers in all sorts of settings? You know, Ricks, the Appalachian Ministry Institute really originated in a desire that I had to better know Appalachia in order to reach Appalachia with the gospel. It's hard to even imagine, but living most of my life in Appalachia, only when I went away to school that I didn't live in Appalachia. It's hard to imagine that you can live in a place and not really know a place. But remember, Appalachians are told by the world to forget your culture, become like the culture. And as Appalachians are thinking lowly about themselves and being led to forget their culture and move away from that, there's a growing distance or maybe we could say there's a growing dissonance Mm. between where they are and their ability to reach Appalachians where they are. Mm. So that's the whole purpose. That's the purpose of the podcast. That's the purpose of the Appalachian Ministry Institute. That's the purpose of our ministry conference is to encourage and equip Appalachians to meet and to reach the people right where they are. Appalachia is growing to be a dark place. We're seeing that from the statistics. People who say, oh, yes, I'm Christian, and even that number is diminishing. And yet, the number of people attending church is in a free fall. As an Appalachian, we really have to ask a question. Do we believe that Scripture is sufficient or not? 
Do we believe that wherever we are, whatever we may sound like, whatever skin color we may have, whatever economic background we come from, do we really believe that God will do what he said, that the power is in the gospel, that there's a ministry program, if you will, laid out, equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. If we really believe that, then we can never allow the rural hills and mountains to hold us back from preaching the gospel. We have to be willing to stand up. And yes, guess what? They may make fun of us for the way that we sound. But remember, it's a message that's foolishness to the perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. That's right. And I mean, I think about right here at Rose Hill. When I stand in the pulpit on any Sunday, there are people far more educated than me out in the congregation. We have psychologists and psychiatrists. We have judges. We have attorneys. We have physicians. We have people who are at the top of their game in all of these fields. And how can a boy from Clinton in West Virginia? Now, you look, I, I, I have to admit something. We often talk about rural. My cousins think I'm the city boy, and they're probably right in a lot of ways. But how can that guy impact these people? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? It's not up to me to impact those people. It's up to me to faithfully proclaim the word of God. Preach the word. That sounds like it came right out of the Bible. Preach the word and trust that the Holy Spirit's at work. You know, we have to trust that God will do what he said he will do, that he is who he says he is, and that even, as the hymn says, from this poor lisping, stammering tongue, that he will use that to preach the gospel. That's where it all comes down to. Yeah, we've we've covered a lot in this episode. I hope that this has been something that's uh, maybe been enlightening to both our people in the region who listen, even those outside of the region who are hoping to gain a little bit of more of a contextual understanding of of Appalachia. Uh, we've talked about some of the stereotypes, the perceptions. We've talked about economic, educational challenges, some of the solidarity that we have with other groups and those things. What we're learning, and I find this to oftentimes be the case, that what it is that we discover in our ministry in the gospel or and with the word of God, prayer is one example. I think growing up in a church as a kid in Appalachia, the importance that Appalachian people put on prayer because we had no power of our own. That's good. That enhanced ministry in another place where prayer became a priority. Yeah. So it was in another place. It wasn't Appalachia, but it was a place where prayer became important. So because of my Appalachian heritage in Christianity, I was able to contribute that in another place. Mm. Mm. Rex, you know, we don't want to diminish the struggles that others have faced. Mm. But what we do want to do is bring to light the struggles that Appalachians face. That's right. And the reality that there are so many incredible Appalachian folks who have come from the past and are there today. And the ministry of those pastors who are serving in unknown places matter because it's right there from that hill, that holler, or maybe it's a city in Appalachia. God's going to use them to reach the nations. That's the call on that little country church. That's the call on that large church. That's the call. Wherever you find yourself, in Appalachia, in Europe, in persecuted China, the call is to reach the nations from right where you are. After listening to this episode, what do you think? 
Is Appalachia akin to a minority people group? As an Appalachian, maybe you never thought about it that way, or maybe you completely understand. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't live in Appalachia, and this topic has helped you rethink your perceptions of the region, send Rex and Dr. Matt an email. The conversation can certainly continue. But no matter the case, if you live in and minister in Appalachia, our prayer is that this discussion helps guide you as you find effective ways to communicate the gospel in your church, big or small. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamlin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email, matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.